Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ethan Besser-Frederick, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Ben Cowan about his new book, Moral Majorities Across the Americas, Brazil, the United States, and the Creation of the Religious Right. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I was wondering if you could first begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write the book. Absolutely. Um, first of all, thanks for having me and thanks for your interests. I am, um, what can I say? I am a, a historian of Brazil. Um, I sort of set out a long time ago to think about um, the ways that people have constructed difference in and through issues of culture war as well as empire. Um, that was at the beginning of my career as a historian, and that led me down a very long path through um, some sort of, you know, maybe not so great for my own health explorations of extreme anti-communism, which was the first big project that I did. Um, And in the course of doing that project and researching and writing about how um, issues, especially of gender and sexuality, were a big part of anti-communist uh, organizing and worldviews um, in Brazil and outside of it during the Cold War and particularly during Brazil's authoritarian period between 1964 and 1985, I kept coming across a whole like sort of series of other kinds of um, documentation and sources about, you know, some other kinds of right-wing extremism that grew out of anti-communism or that were sort of related to what we might think of as more sort of classic anti-communism from the Cold War period. And so I sort of started the research for this book out of interest in that other stuff that I was seeing. Um, and I, you know, I mentioned that my interest in, in anti- extreme anti-communism might not have been so great for me, uh, just because, you know, at some point one really has to kind of turn away from uh, what, at least from my perspective, is kind of a, a morass of um extreme right-wing organizing and ideology. Um, But before I really started writing this book in earnest, I remember thinking to myself, you know, it would be really interesting to do a project on neo-medievalism, right? Like, I keep seeing these people, you know, in my research, as well as sort of, you know, just around um, who are interested in kind of reviving the Middle Ages. And, you know, they have fun costumes, So that seems like it would be fun. Uh, And, you know, somehow that impetus became indeed interviewing people who are neo-medievalists and really do want to run around in in crusader outfits, um, but also a whole series of much more sort of serious and at least from where I'm sitting, darker concerns about exclusivism, right? And the role of exclusivism across national borders and faith kind of constructing the uh, the religious right as we know it today. And once I started down that path, it was a story that I couldn't stop telling. And that's how I got to write this book. Well, I can very much empathize with the, uh, the, the fascination and then also the need to sort of take a break from some very toxic far-right <laughs> research yeah. interests. Yeah. <laughs> so to, to actually start the book, so this the, the book has a very interesting and compelling premise of connecting religious politics among the what we what I think you very aptly refer to as moral majorities. I think that's a great way of framing it for both American and Brazilian uh, contexts that you connect them as transnational phenomenon that are simultaneous and connected. Uh, and your introduction makes the argument that today's religious right in both countries has its roots in this transnational activism of the 20th century. And then very um, I'll say provocatively, only insofar as how the literature tends to talk about the topic, you very much center Brazil as as being a very core place in this process and development. 
uh, when I think much of the literature often uh, centers the United States or, or perhaps some other places in this. So could you tell us a little bit more about Brazil as center? So I know that obviously the whole book is about this, so we'll, we'll get into it as we go on. But could you sort of introduce our readers to uh, this transnational activism that orbits around Brazil? Yeah. I mean, first of all, thank you for that question. Um, I think, you know, as someone who, at least when I began my career, was researching the right in the company of a a much smaller cohort of scholars, a lot of my sort of introduction to like how to think about researching the history of conservatism, at least in, you know, contemporary history, was focused on the United States, right? And so I sort of began with the perspective of the literature that you're referencing, right? Which is that, okay, the United States has this sort of sequence of events that are very clear in the historiography in terms of like, how do we get to, you know, the rise of a certain kind of new right in the the 60s, 70s, 80s, and thereafter. And so I have to admit that I also was very, I was kind of taken aback by what I was finding both in my primary research and in my sort of lived experience in Brazil, right? Thinking, you know, to put it in the simplest kind of way, okay, I'm seeing the same phenomena in the primary sources and in, you know, the news in Brazil that I see in the historiography and in the news in the United States, right? The same kinds of constructions of religious conservatism as identity around the same issues. Um, And, you know, I think the tendency of literature in the United States has been to kind of think of that as a U.S. centric story, but I just was seeing sources that made it impossible to think of it that way, at least for me. Um, And so that's part of what became so compelling about this project for me, right? It's not that, I mean, I think almost anyone knows that I don't really sympathize with the people that I'm writing about, um, but I did sympathize to a certain extent when I would do oral histories with some of my subjects and realize they wanted their stories to be told, right? And that the story of Brazilian activists in the, you know, the, the mid-century to late 20th century period contributing to what really is a transnational new right, you know, that that story wasn't out there and that there was a, like a sort of a, a, a tip of the iceberg, right, that I was seeing that really sort of um, concealed the importance of um, Brazilian activists. You know, to me, it just seemed like there wasn't a way of turning away from how compelling that story was, both as a historian and as someone who's interested in understanding the current moment. That, I think, leads into... Uh, the, the next thing that I wanted to ask you about before we get into the chapters themselves, which is about your source material for the book itself. So you've mentioned um, interviews a couple of times here. Do you want to talk a little bit about what sorts of sources you were using to write this book and why they they led you in this direction of, of treating Brazil as uh, or Brazilians as people who could have their own sort of political movement. Yeah. I mean, of course that's, you know, everyone, every historian's favorite question, right? Ooh, talk about your sources. Um, you know, the sources for this book, and you know, I'm not sure, um, I don't, you know, know your audience that well, but you know, one thing that would have been helpful for me to hear if I were, if there had been podcasts like this when I was, you know, a graduate student or much earlier in my career is just, how much broader my research became as I moved forward, right? I mean, I think I began with a a pretty circumscribed set of sources um, and I just ended up sort of putting together a network that led me to some of the most out of the way places. And I mean that both in terms of documentary and oral history sources. Um, You know, as I began to like, to sort of formulate more and more questions that I wanted to ask, you know, those led me down pathways of institutional history and personal histories. And then of course the history of certain organizations. And I really had to go and sort of hunt down places where I might find traces of those. And so I sort of began this book in a pretty familiar wheelhouse for me, which is, you know, national archives and national libraries and, um, the formal institutions of state-based document gathering, um, including military archives in Brazil. 
Um, and then, you know, very quickly began to realize that I was going to need not only to seek the documents of other institutions, including, of course, the Catholic Church and other Protestant churches, right, but also to sort of find places where I might see documents that just weren't anywhere else, right? Um, and so that included going to, you know, the sort of lesser known um, institutional outlets of certain organizations, like uh, the publishing houses of particular churches, um, or um, finding people who were members of particular organizations and just asking over and over and over again if they knew anyone who kept the papers of whatever the organization happened to be. Um, so for me, a lot of this book, much more so than for my first book, a lot of the research for this took place in private rooms, right? In, you know, the sort of the cabinet of someone's house where they kept the newspaper clippings or the minutes of meetings or in ecclesiastical archives, which is somewhere I never really thought that I would do a lot of research um, or, uh, and this is gets into the oral history part in, you know, small cities and towns in Brazil where I would, you know, meet with people who really had never talked to a scholar before about what they'd been involved with or what they had seen. Um, so this book in particular took me f- much farther off the beaten path, both in terms of finding smaller, you know, archives with a lowercase a, um, and, you know, talking to people in, um, let's say, less traditionally sanctioned or less traditionally imagined places for historical research. I think that 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 narrative echoes so much with I think other great works in this field of of looking at right wing and religious politics, uh, and it's and it's something that I can um, empathize with as well because I think in the experience of a lot of researchers you maybe start going in expecting some of these people with these with these documents to be very productive or concerned about narrative or worried about what you're going to write, but yeah. oftentimes they're just excited that anyone is writing about it at all. Absolutely, uh, that that yeah. this history of religious activism is so is unfortunately so misunderstood still. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that is definitely true. Um, And it is an interesting object lesson in terms of, you know, how, you know, even when you're writing the history of people with whom you, you you know, you could not disagree more, right? Um, They are interested in having their story told one way or another, right? I mean, I, both in my first book and in this project, I, you know, I think I went into a lot of oral history situations with some anxiety, right, about how, my own presence and my own sort of self-presentation would affect um, the information I was able to, to, you know, access. And while I don't think those are negligible or, you know, I don't think they are, you know, factors that play no role, of course, it was really always kind of surprising and amazing to me just how eager people were to talk to me. Well, the, the eagerness to share their ideas is um, definitely a theme throughout the book. Um, and that, that begins in the first chapter, which is titled The Beauty of Inequality, Brazilian Activism, Catholic Traditionalism, and the Making of Modern Conser- uh, of Modern, the Makings of Modern Conservatives, sorry. And it begins with uh, the very fierce opposition to Vatican II among certain members of the Brazilian Catholic clergy. And you use this framing to set off the chapter uh, to tell us more about this historical context in Brazil and why there was... Um, for lack of a better word right now, a sort of nugget of, of, of anti-ecumenical thinking at the time. So could you tell us a little bit about this context and why it was so important in the development of the religious right? Yeah, I mean, you know, to be perfectly honest, this is like, this was one of the first chapters that I conceived of. So this feels like, you know, ancient personal history to me. Um, but something that had certainly come out of um, my early research on this was just the, the sort of strength in Brazil of a particular kind of, um, let's call it uh, resistance to change within the Catholic Church, um, and the strength of that based both in a kind of broadly ideological anti-communism, but also wedded with, you know, a deep resistance to what were perceived as as cultural and and aesthetic changes within the church. Um, And so, you know, I was interested in why that might have been true in Brazil, especially given that, you know, the historiography has tended to focus on another 
very big and important story, which is the development of progressive Catholicism in Brazil. And for me, at least, the answer to that lay in the sort of, you know, really the survival across the course of the 20th century of a kind of, you know, far-right, ultra-traditionalist Catholicism in Brazil that really did sort of fall by the wayside in some other places. Um, and that was, you know, sort of the the place that I got in terms of explaining why there might be, um, you know, within the country that is famous for producing, you know, so much of what we might call um, liberation theology, you know, and really within the country where much of the impetus for progressive reforms at Vatican II was developed, you know, why there might be this sort of, as you rightly call it, you know, an, a nugget of um, of conservatism, both within the laity and within the clergy. Um, and then, you know, once I started going down that road, I realized, oh, you know, there are some really actually quite obvious ways in which Brazilians are at the forefront of, you know, globally conservative Catholicism at this moment. And for some reason, those, even though they seem, you know, quite, uh, quite patent, right, they haven't really been written about, at least not in any sources that I was able to find. Um, and so that is why I sort of began telling this story, right, of how, um, you know, Brazilian Catholics, though they may be known um, in an entirely different way, really reflect a kind of global tension in the Catholic Church. And they do so in a way that shows how important Brazilian activists were to constructing conservative Catholicism as a force in Brazil and beyond, especially beyond in a way. A lot of the resistance in this chapter takes the form of, um, we might call it spectacle, although to, maybe to avoid that analytic, very dramatic incidents uh, is, is what we could call it. And there's many great choices to talk about uh, from this chapter, including a controversial baptism involving diapers. But right. the, sorry, go ahead. No, no, please. Uh, the, the one that jumped out to me are the aesthetics of the beauty of inequality, where, mm-hmm. as you mentioned uh, earlier in our, our conversation, where these activists would quite literally wear very particular clothing and perform certain ceremonies or public displays in an effort to, uh, like, like you said, recreate medievalism. So could you tell us a little bit more about these very literal aesthetics? Yeah, I mean, a big part of what um, traditionalist Catholics are saying is, you know, don't take away these sort of rituals, right? And it took me, you know, at first I would, I have to admit, I was a little bit flip about it. And I was like, well, this is one place I really can get bored on board with these subjects because I also like a fancy hat, you know, um, but I, <laughs> you know, I, it took me a while to sort of read enough into it to understand like, okay, where is this fascination with what the rest of us might think of as trappings? Where is it coming from, right? If we're, we're talking about things like, you know, the cassock for priests and the mitre for bishops, right? Literally particular styles of dress, right? The use of certain kinds of incense, right? These sort of like very sort of fundamental building blocks of aesthetic within the mass and outside of the mass, right? Um, Styles of architecture for churches, kinds of music that should and should not be played in church, the clothing that people should wear as parishioners as well as as, um, clergy, right? These things that, you know, from the perspective, I think, of the kind of Catholicism that maybe most people are more familiar with have been replaced by an ethos of, um, and certainly within popular culture, right, been replaced by an ethos of, well, spirituality is not about the material, right? And while I think, of course, you know, many of my interlocutors would agree with that, right, part of what they're saying is these trappings are essential to the experience of spirituality, right? Um, And that the reason for that is that spirituality is designed from their perspective to reinforce hierarchies which are deserved and desired. Um, And so, you know, when they are agitating for, for example, the, you know, the reinstitution of uh, rules about the mass where, uh, the the celebrant that is the priest has his back to the congregation rather than facing the congregation, you know, what they're saying is the hierarchy that is represented by that, right, puts God first and people in a, a position of subjection and humility, and that that is actually what should happen, right? And their 
vision of that extends beyond, you know, the actual rituals of religious practice to the universe, right? Um, And so the fascination with, you know, what I, like many other perhaps uh, people encountering this for the first time, might sort of dismiss with a sort of flippancy and humor, right? The fascination with, you know, the aesthetics of the Crusades or with um, a certain kind of of reverence for, you know, penance and lions rampant and, um, you know, the kind of these sort of flashy and, um, you know, gilded uh, regalia of bishopric, you know, those things might seem dismissible at first as just kind of nostalgic or sentimental. And it's not that those, that those emotions don't play a role here. It's just that actually there was an ideology here, right? Which was, there's a beauty to inequality. And that means two things, right? It means both that um, these practices are considered literally beautiful by the people who are you know, dedicated to them, but also that they represent uh, and they reinforce a worldview in which inequality is necessary, desired, and justifiable. And the practices that they're talking about are um, sort of necessary to making sure that everyone understands that. I was just endlessly fascinated with the many wonderful quotations and textual analyses in this chapter, because uh, as a person who also works on sort of the far right and Catholic thinking, I'm very used to seeing them smooth over the rough edges of their medieval nostalgia of saying, you know, actually things were more equal in the medieval period than they are now. And and we should emphasize that. And these uh, Brazilian activists that you're quoting say, no, actually it's, it's terrible how equal things are. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, equality is awful, right? Equality is of a piece with the mundanization of the world. It is, it is sort of against God in its most foundational uh, state. Right. But also um, is, you know, extremely problematic in terms of what it means for the church and the sort of, you know, the idea of ecumenism, right? I mean, the one thing that I think is striking about this, um, and maybe this is a difference with uh, with the kind of, um, let's call it accommodationism or, um, or assimilationism that you're talking about with Catholic, with, you know, certain conservative Catholics who would like to hide that fundamental dedication to inequality, is that... Um, once there's a sort of openness to embracing it, it is actually kind of a total worldview, right? One in which, you know, the the physical manifestations that we're talking about with cultural accoutrement are, are meant to and are desired to reflect, a, you know, a, a deep embrace of hierarchy, right? I mean, hierarchy is something to be celebrated literally and figuratively here. Um, and I do think that that is kind of a, a sort of an amazing thing to contemplate about this kind of activism, right? That part of its certainty comes not just from like a romanticization of the Middle Ages, although that is definitely in there, um, but a, 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 a kind of idealism to use, the, I think the only word that we can, right? About, the, about organicism, right? The idea that yes, society and, you know, humans as a species should sort of reflect a, a deeply traditional kind of hierarchy that depends on everything in its right place, both in God's world and in humans' world. Your second chapter connects these threads, which uh, uh, begin obviously predate the Cold War, but then um, are very much inflamed or, or grow or are inculcated in the context of the Cold War. Your second chapter, Guardians of Morality and of Good Behavior, Morality, Dictatorship, and the Emergence of Conservative Evangelical Politics in Brazil connects what we've just been talking about in the first chapter to the Brazilian dictatorship uh, that, that rules the country for much of the Cold War period. And in particular, you focus on the relationship that the Brazilian, the officials of the Brazilian dictatorship had with these post-Vatican II criti- critics. So could you talk a little bit more about this relationship and how they fit together? Yeah, for sure. I mean... Um, this is something that, you know, has been percolating in the historiography about Brazil for a while, right? But, you know, if, um, in a certain sense, a big question 
driving a project like mine from the outset is, you know, how did we get here in terms of Brazil having a religious right that looks eerily similar to that in the United States and elsewhere? You know, another big question that, you know, I think even journalism about Brazil or within Brazil has been asking for some time is, okay, well, you know, people love to talk about Brazil as the biggest Catholic country on earth, right? But what do we make of, you know, the rise of a certain kind of evangelical Protestantism, right? Like, where did this come from? And there's been really decades of really great scholarship on what people call the Pentecostal boom in Brazil in terms of this sort of explosion of interests in, in evangelicalism, but especially Pentecostalism. Um, but personally, I felt a little unsatisfied with, okay, well, how do we get from there to evangelicals are a political force, right? They're a very important political force. And there is, um, you know, I have some Brazilian colleagues who've done really great work on this. But the story that I wanted to tell, right, was about how sort of f- what a sort of fulcrum the end of dictatorship was um, for those Protestants, right? Um, and part of this story I had been introduced to by my previous research about the links between morality and anti-communism, but I really saw that sort of coming to a fore um, in the the late seventies and early eighties in Brazil, right? This just the the willingness of even certain evangelical denominations and certain evangelical leaders to, for lack of a better word, and perhaps inaptly, get in bed with the military on the issue of of moral anti-communism or um, moral authoritarianism, and to do so in a way that benefited those evangelical leaders and institutions, even as it caused major destructive harm to some of their members. And by that, I mean um, persecution within the churches against those who did not sort of fall in line with a new and let's call it more politically conservative um, brand of evangelicalism. Part of the story that I'm telling here is how evangelicals in Brazil became political when for many, many decades they had uh, eschewed politics, at least formally and doctrinally. Um, and as part of telling that story, um, I found that actually, you know, aligning themselves with the forces of a kind of, let's call it a, a, a sort of, you know, quite classically Cold War authoritarian anti-communism in the form of the dictatorship, those conservative evangelicals laid the groundwork for a post-Cold War rise to political and cultural power. And you tell that story very well in this chapter, and it sits alongside historiographies of Brazil, but also of other dictatorships in the Cold War in Latin America, especially I'm thinking of Central America, where regimes had close relationships with evangelical churches. And one of the things I love about your chapter in just the chronology is I think often these evangelical movements are taken as sort of window dressings or features or like another department of a dictatorship. And they sort of in the writing only exist within the world of that dictatorship. But this chapter makes it very clear that that sort of evangelical thinking predated the dictatorship and then continued after the dictatorship. In many ways, the dictatorship was sort of a pit stop for this religious movement rather than the other way around. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I hadn't necessarily sort of phrased it that way to myself, um, but maybe that's because I was so sort of deeply within the research that the kind of chronology in which, you know, dictatorship gives rise to an evangelical movement in the way that I think we've seen the story of Central America told, that never really seemed possible in Brazil. Um, and, I, you know, I'm also indebted to, you know, other scholars of evangelicalism in Brazil and elsewhere who have long been writing about this, you know, the deep history of evangelical Protestantism in Brazil and the, you know, the ways that these struggles can be linked back to earlier periods. But yes, I absolutely agree with you, right, that, you know, the, it is not as though dictatorship in Brazil follows the rules that, you know, maybe, um, I think some of my undergraduate students who are most passionate in their, you know, discovery of the United States' role in the Cold War would be likely to ascribe to it, right? I mean, the dictatorship <laughs> of Brazil, you know, there's no way of simplistically understanding it as just an outgrowth of American imperialism, right? And similarly, evangelicalism in Brazil cannot be ascribed to American imperialism alone, nor can it be seen as kind of enabled by the dictatorship's relationship with 
the world outside of Brazil or with the United States, right? Instead, you know, the sort of trends that we see in um, the culture of Brazil's Protestant churches um, throughout the 20th century reach a kind of crossroads um, in terms of Brazil's public culture in the, the 60s and 70s, right? And are caught up in a uh, sort of a movement of moral anti-communism that feels itself to be on very solid ground in making the argument that, first of all, there is a, a crisis of immorality and that that crisis is linked to deeper political problems, namely, um, you know, weakness in the Cold War. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I thank you for that, that question and comment, because really that is um, what the research showed me. And I'm really pleased that it came through in the chapter. <laughs> <laughs> it, it came through very clearly, and it's echoed again in the next chapter, your third chapter, Paths Taken, Paths Repressed, Dictatorship, Protestant Progressives, and the Rightward Destinies of Brazilian Evangelicalism, which examines a very important question, which is why the progressive wing of Christianity in Brazil, which you've already talked about a little bit, did not acquire, I struggled to come up with the right word here, but did not acquire the same sort of significance or, or power maybe as its right wing rivals or at least maybe hegemony in the country. Maybe I can use that word. Uh, and you end the chapter by noting that the present-day evangelical group in Congress is known as being decidedly right-wing, even though there is a history of progressive Christianity in Brazil. So could you tell us a little bit about these paths taken and paths repressed? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's another one of those, uh, you know, big questions quite related to the overall question of, of how did we get here, Um but one that I think is, is particularly troubling in Brazil, right? Uh, as I mentioned when we were talking about chapter one, you know, many people, scholars and, you know, journalistic or, you know, popular analysts think of Brazil as, as one of the epicenters of progressive thinking in the Catholic Church. Um, and so the fact that, that that form of Christianity is so rightly associated with Brazil's Catholics and not really with Brazil's, um, you know, increasingly uh, predominant uh, evangelical population is strange, right? It, it seems like a weird disjuncture. Not that there aren't, and you know, one when you, of course, when you look at it at all, right? There are, you know, really important and um, and effective, you know, Catholic or non-Catholic progressives um, in Brazil's Protestant history. It's just that they don't seem to have gained the kind of political and cultural traction of their conservative counterparts. So to me, you know, that was a problem that needed solving, at least from my perspective in terms of, you know, how this story played out. Um, and, you know, one um, thing that I found, right, is that um, those who were offering a more sort of what we might think of as a more compassionate Christianity in Brazil, right? I mean, they directly opposed the conservative counterparts that I talked about in the previous chapter, right? They, um, you know, they, for the most part, don't really adopt overtly Marxist positions, at least at first, but in their attempt to focus their own institutions and Christianity in Brazil in general on what we would now call social justice, they sort of really play right into the hands of right-wing anxieties in terms of promoting um, ecumenism and doctrinal change and, you know, allying themselves with rights movements. And they really pay quite a hefty price for that, some of them in the form of, of physical and personal persecution at the hands of an authoritarian state, not to mention being drummed out of um, the communities in which many of them grew up, right? The the churches in which they were raised, in which many of them sought to change as a project of love. Um, so that, I have to say that, you know, this chapter was one of the saddest parts of the story for me, right? Both in terms of, you know, the, the potential for a different kind of Christianity in Brazil and for what happened to people who were really quite um, dedicated champions of reform within their churches and across denominational lines as they tried to build um, a progressive ecumenical Christianity that, although it has endured in Brazil, 
has never had the kind of power that um, conservative Christianity does there now. I think that this chapter, as your answer just demonstrates, provokes many interesting questions that I think a, a number of researchers of different fields would find interesting because your answer highlights there how a mixture of religious uh, belief, practice and activism, and then relationship with the state in a global context, all shaped the sort of religious outcome. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I got the sense from the, from the book, but I would love for you to, to clarify and add on here, that in lieu of the dictatorship, or, or maybe at the beginning of the dictatorship, it was not at all clear that this sort of very right-wing religiosity would become a, a dominant face of Christianity in the country. Does that seem right to you? That does seem quite right to me. Um, I mean, one sort of interesting thing about the Brazilian dictatorship that might sort of set it apart in some ways from other Latin American authoritarian episodes in this period is just the sort of the way that it was conceived of at the time and is thought of in the historiography as like a dictatorship instead of a series of authoritarian regimes, but one that lasted for 21 years, right? So many things were different by the end of it than than were, of course, the case at the beginning of it. But certainly what you're saying is is perhaps one of the most dramatic elements of that, right? I mean, I don't think that if you had talked to anyone on sort of any side of that political or cultural um, spectrum in 1964, uh, at the time of the military coup, that they would have thought that evangelical Protestantism was going to play a major political role in Brazil's future in any way, right? Um, much less that, you know, uh, evangelical Protestantism would be politicized in a particular way and that that would become very impactful. Um, But that said, people within those institutions, right, people within, you know, evangelical churches were beginning to debate these questions in ways that I think were generative and very ambiguous in terms of what their outcome would be, right? Um, Much of what I saw in my research in terms of the experiences and perspectives of um, progressive evangelicals in the 60s and into the early 70s was a lot of hope, right? Excitement about the possibility and the, the promise of a new kind of Christianity, especially of ecumenism as a way of achieving a kind of more open, more social justice oriented, much more egalitarian Christianity. Um, and so I think even in the experience of individuals who lived through this, this was a, a story with a lot of possibilities on whom or on which m- many of those possibilities were for- foreclosed upon rather quickly, right? So certainly um, uh, the notion that, you know, at the beginning of the dictatorship, then the, the possibilities were open for evangelical Christianity in Brazil, and that by the end of the dictatorship, that had changed in some pretty dramatic ways. I think that's not only true, but it's also the sort of the lived experience of people who who went through this. Your fourth and final chapter, uh, in some ways, picks up uh, after this, after this change, after this sort of conclusion. Mm. And it's entitled Preach the World, Reach the World, Authoritarian Brazil and the Organization, and then with a parenthesis S, of a transnational right. And it places this evangelical movement into a transnational context. And you very forcefully and clearly argue here that the religious right, both then and now, was and is not just a collection of national movements that happen to work together on a bigger scale, but instead that they're fundamentally transnational. Yeah. So could you talk a little bit about that distinction and how you analyze these movements in this chapter? Yeah. Um, I mean, again, thank you for that question, right? I mean, I think it is a really, it is, it's an important distinction um, for sort of the reasons that we talked about a little bit in terms of like why it was important to write about this, write this book about Brazil, right? Um, I think there's, a way in which if I hadn't been a historian of Brazil <laughs> looking at this, I might've been tempted to read all of this through the lens of, you know, U S influence. Right. And I think mm-hmm. that, that has been, a, it has been a very seductive narrative about um, really about the new right in general, but particularly about right-wing Christianity, because there is a story there. Right. I mean, even if we think about, um, you know, recent events, um, you know, the, the, the role of U.S. evangelicals in um, 
making right-wing Christianity visible in other parts of the world and making it work in certain ways isn't to be dismissed, right? It's not negligible. Um, I What I wanted to point out, though, is that it wasn't just a story of, you know, U.S. evangelicals exporting some kind of model for right-wing Christianity, that, in fact, those moves were anticipated by people in Brazil, that they were sort of envisioned in different ways by people in Brazil, and that the process was, it wasn't just that it was collaborative, right? It was that it was multipolar and had different important loci, some of which, and especially Brazil, were outside of the United States. Um, So, I mean, I guess another way of thinking about that, right, is like, you know, it's easy for us to refer to stories in history or in our own lifetimes in which we see that kind of U.S.-centric vision as justifiable, right? I mean, uh, one example that I can think of is the, the role of Scott Lively and of evangelicals from the United States exporting a certain kind of agenda for um, homophobic violence in other parts of the world, especially in, in, for example, Uganda, right? It's not that that story isn't important, and it's not that, you know, the idea of exporting a certain kind of conservative Christianity didn't play an important role in Brazil as well. It's just that there were Brazilians who thought of ideas like that before Americans came along (laughs) and, you know, sort of um, wanted to work with them on them. And that was nowhere more apparent to me than in the sort of testimony of Americans themselves saying that, right? You know, when I researched particular figures and institutions, you know, I just kept coming across these moments in which, you know, people from different denominations coming from the United States would sort of, you know, bear witness to the fact that they were finding a sort of uh, either an extremism or a, a level of organization in Brazil that they envied, right? That they they thought, oh, I wish that we could have this kind of, you know, traditionalist Catholicism or this kind of, you know, extreme anti-communist Presbyterianism in the United States, right? Um, and, you know, that is just kind of a nugget of that larger um, phenomenon, right? Which is, this isn't a story about, you know, particular communities in particular nations, uh, you know, building their own conservative Christianities and then kind of later sort of linking up, right? It's, you know, a collaborative process in a really seminal period for global Christianity in which, um, you know, there is collaboration that, as I say, is multipolar in terms of where impetus and ideas and, Um, success are coming from and seen, right? And Brazil plays a really, really important part in that. I really enjoy your your explanation there and then also what's in the chapter itself because it, I I think it can be very hard for students, I know from experience, but I think also for some researchers to hold simultaneously that these are neo-medievalists who sort of definitionally are looking backwards in some ways, but also have extremely global perspectives and very well stamped passports uh, and and know what's going on in the world and compare themselves to what's going on in the world. So I love the sections when Americans arrive in Brazil and are just outright jealous about um, what they might consider progress in Brazil. Right. Yeah. I know that, uh, that always kind of tickled me too, you know, Um, and, you know, Brazilians themselves, especially in these situations are not unaware of that. Right. I mean, some of the, more right-wing evangelical publications that I, you know, read through the archives of, you know, they're quite proud of having, of sending missionaries, for example, to places like Massachusetts and Pennsylvania and Washington State and saying like, oh, you wouldn't believe the levels of immorality we found up there. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the dogs. Uh, there, there's a, no, a, a number of lovely oxymorons or contradictions in this book for for readers who enjoy those sorts of things, whether it's uh, interdenom- multi-denominational anti-ecumenicism or yeah. global globalized anti-globalism or, or other phenomenon like that. Um, you, you conclude this last chapter with connections to the present day, of which there are probably an infinite number, mm. uh, whether it's studies of the Americas, religion, ideology in the Cold War. Uh, and then obviously politics in Brazil and the United States today. Uh, are there any, what implications or, or major ideas are you hoping that readers take away about religion and politics today in these two countries? Because one of the ones that jumped out to me the most 
was that many people, at least in the American press, were very surprised by the close affinity of Bolsonaro and Trump personally, yeah. and then their their movements as well. And and the conclusion of this book is that this this is an obvious conclusion. It would be, in, in fact be strange if anything else had happened. Yeah. Um, so what what are some other implications or ideas that you would want readers to take away about religion and politics today in these two countries? Yeah, I mean, I think. Thank you for for saying that, right? It it feels good to to not be the only person who's like, wait a minute, <laughs> this isn't surprising, you know. And and that is really part of what I wanted to come across in the book, which is why I ended up in writing the introduction the way that I did, right, about Bolsonaro and Trump. Um, I mean, I think there are several ways that one might answer that, you know, really excellent question. Um, one is just you know, to say a sort of on a personal note, right, I, I really, I wrote this book before COVID, right, before the pandemic was even on the horizon. And I finished it in, like, I, I think I turned in the, the final version to the press in, uh, like, the third week of March of 2020, right? And so <laughs> it was the, a, a moment that felt a little bit like a fulcrum, but, you know, a year and a half later, it feels much more like a fulcrum, but I couldn't have anticipated the ways in which um, the story that I was telling in this book would really have the same kind of predictive potential for the responses of particular constituencies, particular governments, particular individuals to the global crisis of COVID. And so one way that I have sort of experienced the last year and a half is watching public conversations, especially journalistic conversations, react with like, you know, surprise and shock uh, that, you know, even in the midst of, you know, a life-threatening pandemic, this is the way that politics and culture wars continue to frame you know, responses. And I think the, you know, I also find those, uh, those things to be shocking, but not as surprising. And part of the, I think part of the way we can empower ourselves to not find, you know, the current, you know, political situation, if you want to call it that, um, (laughs) surprising is to look back at these histories and realize, oh, there are, there are decades of building towards these kinds of um, intractabilities, Right. These, you know, um, moments in which uh, a culture that has convinced itself that since the Enlightenment, we've been on a march of progress toward a certain kind of relationship between uh, the state, individual liberty and subjectivity that actually, you know, that is not, you know, an uninterrupted narrative. And it certainly is not one that resonates with the lived experiences of a lot of people. And thus, you know, the the power of this kind of construction to appeal to people um, isn't something that we can just dismiss, right? And, you know, anti-ecumenical ecumenism is, is one great example of that, but more broadly, right, a sort of, you know, anti, an, an anti-global elite politics, right, that takes up um, traditionalism as its fodder, right, as its way of motivating people. Um, I mean, I think we can see how that has been a recipe for success over the long term. And I think that has to influence how we think about the inevitability of, you know, resolution to our current problems, right? I think um, in many ways, and I include myself in this, right, it does feel as though, oh, well, this current situation, right, this way of confronting uh the sort of the 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 current moment via a lens of nostalgia or I want my country back or <laughs> you know, make America great again, right? That 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 feels, I think, from the perspective of modern global liberalism to be untenable, but in fact it is very tenable and very sustainable. And so, you know, if anything to me, when I look back at the research that I did for this book, it reads like a like a warning to me, right? To not take for granted um, that these kinds of movements and ideas and platforms remain fringe. That in fact they're very compelling, and that people work hard, worked hard to make them so, and they continue to do so. 
There are a number of excellent connections to the present and just interesting moments in the past itself that exist in this book. We didn't even get to talk about uh, feelings of persecution, real or imagined, that fuel yeah. this sort of politics and, and other sorts of phenomenon like that. But but before we close out today, and um, before we leave, a final question for you is now that this book is published, uh, what's next or what are you working on now? Oh, well... Right at the moment, absolutely nothing. No, that's not true. <laughs> no, I, you know, I have two sort of future projects on the brain, one of which is more akin, one of which is less akin to this work and my previous work. The more akin one is about monarchism, right? Um, mm-hmm. Something that I, I didn't, I mean, I addressed it sort of tangentially in this book, but it, you know, is a an increasingly uh, sort of important arena of Brazil's popular culture and political culture is, you know, the role of the, the idea of Brazil's monarchy in Brazilian culture and how traditionalism has like made a place for that um, in pop culture and political culture. Right. I mean, the most obvious example being the, the Royal family in Brazil sort of agitating for a return to not just public life, but political power. Um, You know, I've, talked recently in so in conferences etc about the the ascendancy on twitter of the head of the brazilian royal family who you know is is a supporter of bolsonaro right while at the same time calling for the return of what he sees as his heritage right and the ways in which it's kind of mobilizing around monarchism it reflects a lot of the things that i talked about in this book but also has been sort of transformed to be appropriate for the current age. And I, I'm interested in, you know, the sort of the long durée of that. Um, and then the second project that I uh, am really beginning to get off the ground is about um, mountaineering and uh, the role of, um, of North Atlantic style mountaineering in reshaping ideas about space and altitude and sport um, in Brazil and elsewhere in the global South. And my focus at this point is on um, the ways in which certain kinds of conservative masculinity and especially military masculinity have been sort of formulated around mountaineering and its uh, reputed ruggedness um, as a note of identity. Well, both of those sound absolutely fascinating. Um, although I, I wonder if they're going to pull you in two different directions. They they sound overlapping, but perhaps also a little distinct. <laughs> yeah, they definitely are distinct. So I need to. I'm at a. I may be at a, a fork in the road soon. And you know, next thing you know, I'll be researching people in crusades costumes and <laughs> back on right wing Christianity again. Well, whichever one you land on, please stay in touch about it because I'd love to to have you back on to talk about your next project. Oh well, that's very kind of you. Um, it was such a pleasure, and thank you for your interest. Thank you so much for your time today and for the excellent book, Ben, and uh, for, for appearing on the show. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you.